You're listening to the Two Bucks Podcast, the podcast for outdoor entrepreneurs. Little by little, I was getting the sense of my time isn't my time. Just kept feeling this pull to the outdoors and wanting to do something in the outdoor space. Welcome to the Two Bucks Podcast, the podcast for outdoor entrepreneurs. I'm your host, Brian Krebs, and with me today is Bill Thompson from Spartan Forge, a revolutionary software company that helps you predict deer movement, track your deer sightings, and even do your mapping. With that, Bill, how's it going, man? Good, Brian. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. So you looks like you have a whole host of hardware over your shoulder from the military. Can you tell me a little bit about your time in the military? Uh, yeah, sure. I, 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 I didn't even notice that was there. I, I thought it was off camera. Um, 20, I was in the military for 21 years. Uh, I was, I don't, I don't know. Um, a lot of people don't know what chief warrant officers are, but I was a chief warrant officer Okay. and they're just essentially the technicians of units is the best way to think about them. They're generally determining like, what are the, what are the hard and software requirements, hardware and software requirements for a unit to conduct their mission? What are the tools? What are the, um, the technological solutions that will enable the combatant commander to achieve his operational and strategic goals. Mm-hmm. So if, uh, so if, a, if there's a warrant officer in like a cab unit, then they might be looking at like long range optics. They might be looking at radios. They might be looking at, um, you know, solutions for that, to, for that commander to execute their mission. Uh, in my case, I was in military intelligence, um, which I realize is an oxymoron, but we try our <laughs> best. Um, and, uh, my, I, I, I started the military doing signals intelligence, which is, you can think of it as just like, you know, radios, exploiting radios, exploiting different types of transmission and communication devices, that type of thing. Um, and then I went from there into, um, communication intelligence and human intelligence and human intelligence is like, you know, when people start hearing like the James Bond music, they think of it like James Bond isn't really a human intelligence guy, but I think he's probably the paragon for human intelligence, or at least that's how all the human human intelligence guys see themselves is like a James <laughs> Bond type. But um, I did, and that's just essentially what that is, is just a briefing and information from, from people. Um, the access is, I guess, what makes it sexy, but that's not always the access that you see in the movies. Um, and then uh, from there, I went, I spent about 10 years doing cyber work. Um, I have a background in engineering. So uh, that's uh, uh, computer ne- computer network operations is the best way to think about it. So think of it as like ethical hacking on on the on the on the behalf of the United States military. Um, and uh, I, I uh, you know I would go do these operational tours and I would do um, advising tours and I would do um, development tours. So one job I might be actually out there using the stuff and then I'd kind of go back to you know the Fort Meade area. And I'd be building tools, then I'd go back out and use them again, and then come back. And uh, uh, yeah, I did that for about 21 years, and uh, I retired a year ago, on the first of November. So it's already been over a year, which is crazy. Awesome. Um, and uh, I started Spartan Forge. It's tough to. I incorporated in 2017, but I started work on Spartan Forge in 2013, um, and. Uh, uh, data collection at that point um uh, our our ai that we use uses collared um deer movement data from gps studies um and a lot of my work in the military was also focused on ml or machine learning um and uh, neural network composition and testing and, and 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 deployment and uh so i started building these neural networks using collared deer movement First, with some sensors that I built on my own, and then I showed that stuff to some people in academic in academia that were doing the collar GPS studies, and I got them convinced them to share their data with me, um, and we got our first functional neural network. And I say functional because it it, re, it it was basically able to predict what was actually happening with the air movement, and we can right. test it, which kind of differentiates our AI from other prediction systems that you see out there that are basically user systems. Or, or, or expert models, as they call them. Um, the first one that started predicting well was like 2016 or maybe 2017. That's when I incorporated, um, and I knew that that's what I would be doing when I retired from the military in 2021. So that's kind of the long and the short of on my military background and a tiny bit on Spartan Forge. 
that kind of gets us here today. Oh, yeah. It sounds like you have 20 years of in-the-field experience doing, I mean, almost identical things to Spartan Forge. I mean, like 20 years of learning how to do this stuff, how to take information, track, how to, you know, predict movement. I mean, obviously, I, I mean, looking at your website, you were doing it for a little different, more noble cause overseas, right? Trying to protect yeah, the country yeah. and their ass and their interests. But, you know, you can just take that stuff home and it, you've obviously found a way to apply it to deer hunting. And, and so it sounds like you, you definitely know what you're talking about. Somewhat. I mean, I, I, I fake it pretty well, at least. Yeah. I, uh... Get everyone to believe I do. Right. Right. That's incredible. So, so what are, so Spartan Forge looks like they have, looks like you've got three big like verticals within the Spartan Forge system, right? The, the hunting, the journaling and the predicting. So how does, how did you arrive? Did, I mean, is it Spartan Forge always look like it does today or what was the journey from the beginning to what you see now before us? Well, it started in 2017 um, as just a website where you could go and um, I really want, needed to get an MVP out that kind of showcased the uh, the minimally viable product that kind of showcased the artificial intelligence. So that was developed by myself and um, my co-founder in 2017. And that took that neural network, or no, 2018, that took that neural network and then just kind of put it online and we didn't even charge for it. I basically just sent it the link to buddies to use it and just to tell me if they were seeing what I was seeing in the data because <clears throat> What I can do is I can separate data that I train the neural network with, and then I have data that never touches the neural network. And then I can query the neural network that I develop and use the, the, the truth data that I have to gauge the efficacy of the model or how well the model is, is doing. Okay. Um, so I have live data from places in Pennsylvania, um, places in Ohio and places in Florida um, and a couple of other places. Um, where it's, I get new data every day and I can go online and look right now and see what the deer are doing. And I can look at my model at that time. I didn't have access to that data. So I needed hunters to tell me if the days that the artificial intelligence were predicting were correct or not. So the first instantiation of the product was just that neural network and some, um, basil, um, weather data that was kind of put on a website, um, that people could go to. And then, then after a year or two of that being used by some friends of mine, um, and some other guys that I had brought on who I knew were really good deer hunters, we all kind of agreed that there was something there. Um, and then that's when we decided to, um, uh, I basically did a traveling road show. And I went um, and built some networks throughout the hunting industry and started to, um, I don't know how long, how deep you want me to get into this, but I essentially, and if you want me more, just ask me more and I can get into it, but I'm sure. skipping a lot of stuff. Um, I made friends with a pretty notable whitetail hunter. He actually came to speak at my church. His name was um, Charlie Alzheimer. Um, and he was a photography for deer and deer hunting. Um, and I basically just um, gave him a card and said, hey, here's my info. This is what I'm trying to do. And I could tell right away that he was actually genuinely interested in what I was talking about. So we kind of developed a friendship and went back and forth. And I just told him what I had. He started making introductions um, into the hunting industry. Um, and uh fast forward to i think it was a couple years ago two years ago maybe or three years ago um i was getting ready to license the neural network to a substantial hunting app um one of the larger ones in the, in the market i actually talked to all of them and all of them wanted to buy this from me um and <clears throat> even though this this hunting company was was offering me the least amount of money they had the largest reach um, and for me, it was all about getting saturated in the market and they had a large marketing arm. And that's kind of one of the most expensive things in my experience for my last few years is getting your name out there and getting people to know who you are. The, you know, you can do it at the tactical level with hunters and that works to a degree um, by, right. by word of mouth, but you still have to have the, the marketing campaigns for people that might not interact with your data or might not be um, online as much or those types of hunters. So I was willing to kind of take it on the chin for a couple of years. And I thought I would just contract in the government, continue working well. Um, this neural network was, you know, um, creating a name for the company. Uh, but a long story short, you know, I, I'd kind of gotten into the contract that this company was serving me. And it basically said for like five years, I couldn't do anything without their 
the contract was for a year, maybe two years. I don't remember. It was a year or two years. And it was not large. It was hundreds of thousands of dollars. But based on the work and the time that I put right. into it, it wasn't, it was just not commensurate with the level of effort. But again, I looked at their marketing arm as being the, um, as being the sell. And I'm kind of going into this because you are an entrepreneurial podcast. So I'm guessing that the people that listen to this can learn from my mistakes, but <laughs> essentially the company wanted to control everything I was doing for about five years. So for the first two years, I'm on contract and they could cut the contract for the third year. Then I would just have to sit around for three years and ask them before I could partner with someone else. Um, and, and you I know what that answer is going to be, right? I mean, right, exactly. No, um, uh, we would prefer you to not partner with our biggest competitor. Thank you for yeah, your question. Right. Or, or anyone else for that matter. Like right. I had started talking to a, to a magazine that was totally unrelated that was just interested in what we were doing and they wanted to control those types of um, things as well. Oh um, yeah. So it was not even related. It was anybody that we were going to partner with because their thing was like, well, they might be partnered with someone that's partnered with someone that is our enemy. So we need to control that too. And we're not going to get back to you. And it was just, it was very, very slow and very large. And so when you, when you read something like that in the contract, I'm sure your defenses went up right away. Like I've been working my tail off for this for all these years. And now you're going to come in and tell me what I can and can't do and, and really not, you know, compensate me for it. Yeah. They weren't even going to pay me commensurate with the, what we needed to keep the development going. And again, if it had just been a one or two year contract, I wouldn't be here talking to you today. If they just said, look, we'll just do this for a year. Because like I said, my plan was just to get people knowing what Spartan Fort, the name. Yeah. And they had that marketing arm to do that. And they were, they were saying they were going to do that. So anyway, um, it kind of got down to brass tacks with us. And I was like, look, if we're, you guys aren't going to change this, I can't work with you. Like, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to give you five years of my life for a few hundred thousand dollars. It's just not happening. Um, and I said, I basically three or four times throughout this conversation that the president of his company was like, look, you don't want to build a map. It's really difficult to build a map. And he kept saying that to me, like almost like three or four times. And by like third or fourth time he said it, I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to build a map. <laughs> I, don't I don't think that's the difficult part. The mapping portion isn't really the difficult part. It's, it's the, the neural network and all of the back end and all of the, um, the framework and the architecture that has to be erected to make these things is the difficult part. Um, the server side, the, the everything behind the forward facing part of the application is actually, you know, you could think of it like, you know, you have a race car, um, driving the race car might not be the most difficult part. The difficult part is probably the aerodynamics, the tires, the pit right. crew, everything that has to go into getting that car on the track. And so I, I basically, by the end of that conversation, I was like, I, I think I'm going to do my own app. I think I can do this on my own. I, I was reading into it. I knew what the level of effort was. And we had an app on the market from nine, nine months from that day, um, um, which is it was a Herculean effort. Yeah. yeah, it was a Herculean effort. It was, you know, I've basically been doing t between 12 and 15 hour days, six days a week, sometimes seven days a week since 2020. Um, and I think I've aged probably six or seven years in that time. Um, <laughs> but it's, it, we, you know, we did it with three dudes. Um, whereas most of these companies I was dealing with had a marketing team that was between 10 and 15. Um, I'm running marketing for us. Um, it had a, a development team. Some of them had 30, some of them had 70 people. We're doing it with three. Right. Um, um, and a lot of their ethics and the things that were involved with these companies and kind of the way that when companies get really large, um, they kind of lose the spirit of why they were started and the customer that they serve. And they start to try to abstract and scale into different areas. And they kind of lose. It's like my grandfather used to tell me, you know, you dance who, with who you came with. In other words, when you show up to the big event, you know, with a date, don't go off dancing with other people. Right. Because you're looking like a shithead in the, excuse me, uh, 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 an idiot in the long <laughs> yeah. run. Because you've abandoned the reason why you made it there. Um, and a lot of these companies were doing that. So I was like, you know what? We can make a map. That's not the issue. We're going to make a mapping company. It's going to be. Um, veteran centric, it's going to be customer centric and I'm going to do things a little differently. I answer all of the, the trouble tickets. I deal with the customers directly. Um, I have a beat on the cent. And even though now we're, we've hired over this season, we've hired, um, 12 people. Um, wow. I'm still doing all of that interaction and, uh, we have a marketing team now just, you know, in the last few months. 
Um, but I'm still handling all of that tactical level business because I don't want the spirit of the company to get so abstract from why we were started that we start to not become what we were. So we're doing these veterans hunts. We're doing um, veteran centric donations. We work with a lot of 501c3s um, where we're trying to you know, use our platform to raise money for veterans. So um, I'm trying to keep this thing always about the hunter. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what a lot of these companies, they, they, all of them want to get into fly fishing and other BS that, you know, it's not central to killing whitetails or elk. Um, and they kind of forget where they came from. And I think that happens because they take investment on from non hunters and from non hunting companies. Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, how do we scale what we've done so that now we're serving this, 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 and this, and this. Right. Um, where can we, how do we sometimes. put like access points for the best place to go view the, you know, ring necked pheasant or the blue collared peccary it's like well we're not bird watchers we're hunters like we don't need yeah we're not yeah. mountain bikers we're hunters like we don't need all that stuff yeah and you can do that sometimes but you need to rebrand and have a different ceo and a different person in charge of that and there's advantages to like doing code reuse obviously um you can make another mapping app for bird watchers but bill thompson shouldn't run it bill thompson you should go find right. the bill thompson of bird hunters and then have him run it um and do their own thing and then you know yeah. maybe we take 10 percent of their profits but it doesn't it anyway i'm, I'm trying i'm getting into the ethic and w- really why i rejected kind of like this corporate um rigmarole that i saw coming down the pipe like um and why i kind of went the way that i did so there's a long answer for you yeah no that sounds really cool so so obviously the, the decision at the end of the day was was basically to to you know respectfully decline all the offers and you and keep it in-house isn't that and that's what you've done yeah just do it ourselves. yeah um obviously sign yourself up for a lot of work but i looking back was it the right decision you feel absolutely yeah Yeah, without a question yeah i like that i like hearing that because you know we're all entrepreneurs you know in this conversation and you know it's obviously it's nice when you can get a big paycheck for all the hard work you've done but that's also i mean you're, you're putting a little bit of a limit on the future as well at the same time and it's nice to see someone say, no, I think I'm going to, I'm going to bet it on myself. I'm going to risk it. I'm going to, I'm going to do it on myself and I'm going to see if I can make it or not. And then it just explodes. I mean, that's, that's the spirit of the whole podcast right there is someone saying, you know what? I think I can do this. Yeah. I think that's the entrepreneurial spirit is self-reliance and self-determination. And really right now, the only person I work for is the customer. Right. And yeah. that's really, that, that to me is the highest, highest ethic as it is, as it concerns, um, uh, where I want to be in life and how I want to do what work and how I do the work. Yeah. So it sounds like you're not going to go public and worry about the shareholders anytime soon. (laughs) That's awesome. No, no, (laughs) not anytime soon. Cool. So when was the moment that you were in the military doing your job and it hit you like, wait a second, what I'm doing here overseas, tracking down, you know, bad guys, I could do this to track down big bucks. Yeah, there are a couple of points of contact when that happened. I would say the biggest one, or when I most got excited about it was, I'm going to speak abstractly, obviously, because these are military operations, and um, I was never really given formal briefs on what I can talk about and what I can't talk about. So I'll speak generally enough, but essentially I was constructing my own sensor network in Afghanistan um, to build out passive pattern of life on terrorists so the way to think about that is Mm -hmm. um there's active measures that you can take to to conduct a pattern of life surveillance and surveillance detection and active surveillance operations to go out and actually take photos and delve into the history of a bad guy and you know you're pro you're probing but then also you can just you know leave sensors that are going to be you know in areas where you think these these thugs might be and um and then and then do some variable isolation analysis on the on, on the data that you're aggregating from the sensor networks and um and and then start to draw meaningful hints on why you know abu bad guy was on this highway every third wednesday of the month um so those types of sensor networks i i was deploying i was first building basically on like the on the Cobb Alpha compound with the, the special operations compound that I was on um, because I was assisting a, a very small unit 
that had a lot of latitude um, to go out and kind of conduct these operations. They had a very unique target set. They weren't answering to like the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. They were basically given a mission and told to go and do it. And they had, they were very, very, very well funded. So myself and a, my, my buddy and I, my background is in electrical engineering. Oh, cool. Same my, here. Yeah. And then my buddy's background was in um, uh, software engineering. We basically uh, uh, put together these sensor networks. We went on Adafruit and, 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 and got a bunch of Zigbee's and some Arduinos. And uh, we actually used Edison's instead of Apple Pies or instead of um, Raspberry Pies at the time. <clears throat> and um, basically made up our own sensor networks and started doing pattern of life analysis on these things. And at that point, this was like 20, the first time I did it was like 2010 or 2011. And at that point, I wasn't using Adafruit. I think that was in 2015. But um, I did a few deployments. And as I was doing these deployments, I was like, you know, I, I'm a, a voracious whitetail hunter as well. Um, in fact, that's pretty much all I do is whitetail hunt in my off time. And I just, it, you know, it became evident to me um, that uh, this was, there was an analog here for hunters and there was an underserved market when I examined what other planning tools and that type of stuff was out there. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the long and the short of it. Oh, I mean, I, if I imagine putting myself in your shoes, you're doing all this work, you're gone, you're away from home a lot in these 20 years, 21 years, and you're probably getting home and you're like, all right, I got like two days to hunt. I want, I've want. i been getting pictures of this deer. I want to try to find him, man. Where could he be? How could I find him? And you're like, oh, I do this at work all the time. All I got to do is build the network and, you know, I can predict where he's going to be. So when I got two days to hunt, I can make the most of it. Yeah, and that's really what I was doing for the um, the combatant commander was – um uh variable analysis and um automating the targeting cycle so that it wasn't so onerous to try to get a a recommendation on kind of the five w's on every bad guy so you know basically abstracted that notion away and did the same thing for whitetail hunting um do you find yeah. that the whitetails like, is there a connection between the bad guys overseas and the whitetails? Do they like do the, the same things and the same level of predictability? And it's like, you just apply the same set of rules to a different group of things. Humans are more predictable. Really? Uh, yeah. Far more predictable. I mean, it doesn't surprise me, but it's just kind of funny to hear. Yeah. I mean, when I was quantitating, um, when I was doing um, qualitative and quantitative analysis on these things, we got pretty, um, depending on what area you were looking at it from people get very predictable about certain things. And, and, you know, Interesting. I mean, just think about yourself, like where you shop, where you, the gas stations that you stop at, the food that you like to eat, um, the, the times of the month that you like to go to certain places, the gym that you work out in all of like, just think, just think about that for a few minutes and oh, yeah. kind of try to remove yourself from that. If I was and trying to hide from you, it would take you all of about 13 seconds to, to intercept me on my life. Like, I'm knock, knock, way, knock. So. It's Bill. I'm here yeah. for you. <laughs> I'm like, wow, that yeah. was fast. <laughs> I mean, I'm trained on these things, and I'm also pretty knowledgeable on how to subvert these things. And I still find myself, it's just the way life works. You need a pattern and structure What's, in order to comport yourself. It's funny to think about because, like, the complexity of our lives is so much higher than a deer's, to, to mean to me anyway. Like, we have different engagements and hobbies, and, and we have bigger networks, and we move farther distances. And a deer, like, they just eat, sleep, and survive. You, you would be funny yeah. to think that that's more hard. It's harder to predict them than us because they don't, you know, it's like they don't have, like, oh, there's a Facebook event going on tonight. I should go over to, you know, Larry's back 40 and meet up with this other eight pointer, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. I guess the, a, a couple of like, there, so there are three driving characteristics that I think about, and these aren't the only ones, but they're kind of the same ones that I think about. Um, uh, when I, when I think about targeting, it's, you know, food, sex, and security, and it works for both the human, for the human and it works for the whitetail. Yeah. Um, and we, we as humans, um, prioritize food and sex over security most mature whitetails prioritize security over food and sex. Um, now they all lose their minds for a couple of days during the rut. But when you start talking about like a really wise whitetail, like a 160, 170 class public land buck, say in Michigan or somewhere else, yeah, um, 
I will see in the data where those deer will walk one and a half to two miles a night for food. And I also see in the data where those deer won't participate in the first rut. Interesting. Um, now that's not the rule. That's an exception. Yeah. Um, that's not the rule. But what I'm saying is when it comes to humans, um, by and large, and now I'm not talking about hunters, hunters might be thinking about this and say, well, I prioritize security. It's like, okay, well, you might also prioritize individual freedom in the second amendment. So you're not the average bear when it comes to humans. Yeah, um, no, far average vast human, majority of people are thinking like, where's my next meal? And that girl yeah. is really cute. Yes. And they're not thinking about what, how pickable is my door lock? Do I vary my time, distance, and direction on routes to work? Do I uh, know how, how, how could I get to my pistol in the dark if there was a home intruder? Um, does my daughter get followed home from school by some creep every day? Who are the chill, who are the people that interact with my child on a daily basis? Right. Where are, where are my food sources and water sources? If there were to be an EMP or if there were to be a flood, um, there, you know, there's a huge flood when I was growing up in North Dakota, um, in the summer or the spring of 97, yeah. um, that really made people rethink operational and physical security protocols. Um, it's just a, it's something that we think about as humans and I'm guilty of it as well. So it's just a long story short is a whitetail um, probably has five or six different areas that they can go and eat. Um, now you not, maybe not the two and a half year old buck, like they might become very predictable, but if you intrude on a whitetail's area where he feeds, he'll just go feed at the next place. Yeah. Um, yeah. And if you, now if someone were to blow up your grocery store, it might take you a little bit of time to figure out where you're going to get your next meal. Um, or, or you might very quickly pattern to something else. So I'm not saying humans are dumb and deer are smart. What I'm saying is from an evolutionary instinctual advantage, um, they are hyper-focused on those three things that I talked about before. And we might get hyper-focused on Facebook yeah. or Instagram or something else that has, that has made us neglect the, those three things that I talked about before. Now, of course, every deer herd has that 167 year old and we have Chuck Norris. So, you know, I've always made that joke as well, right? Um, most deer in the woods see a bag of corn get dropped down and they'll start feeding on it and not think about the implications. I've again seen in GPS data where bucks will avoid those areas um, where corn has been dropped. Um, I have a study from Auburn where when, when they first put out the feeders on these GPS collared bucks, some of the more mature bucks in that population will avoid those areas for the first few weeks. And then they, they, and then they might only go to those areas at one or 2 a.m. Uh, to And they're not even going there to feed. They're going there to check for hot does. So, right. Yeah. It's funny. To how see. many people do you know who would, so to complete the analogy, if I were to drop, if we were in the middle of a Vietnam conflict and someone airdropped 1200 cheeseburgers, how many people do you know that would avoid the cheeseburgers? Well, <laughs> probably the ones that made it out for the same right, reasons exactly. they made it out. Exactly. Like, ah, eh, I don't think I'm going to go over there. I think I'm going to, I yeah, think that's I a trap. That's probably a bad idea. Right. Exactly. So you drop a thousand cheeseburgers kind of downtown in Minneapolis and everyone's going to flock to them. Yeah. And I'm being kind of tongue in cheek here, but all I'm trying to say is, um, uh, the white for, for us, we abstract death away and we don't think about death often. I think from an evolutionary and instinctual, um, um, standpoint for the white tail, uh, everything revolves around avoiding death for them. And it's not something that we really do as often. Yeah. I, the, the Hunter podcast out of Ohio put it well as they just said, they got nothing to do, but survive. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. they're like, you know, they they were joking. Like I want to go out and put a bunch of corn piles out on all these public or like all this land and wait for like these two and a half year olds that are kind of dumb still. And then scare them off of corn piles. So for the rest of their life, they avoid a corn pile like the plague. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, yep. Exactly. That's really cool. Have you been able to start seeing any patterns in your research to predict rut movement? Because obviously whitetails early and late are, are easier to predict than in the rut. And, you know, a lot of times people get to the rut, they throw all their plans out the window and they just sit in good funnel spots and, and hope that the buck they're after what comes by them. Yeah, ruts, the rut is pretty consistent. Um, I've got data going back 10 years on one individual whitetail population. Um, and the, the, the rut invariably happens. The first, the primary and secondary rut happens within a three or four day period. 
um, largely based on photo period. It's very predictable. Okay. Um, and that rut, and the and the majority of the breeding takes place during that time. Now that now that's the that's the technical definition of the rut, and that's the technical definition of the rut that a biologist would use, mm-hmm. which is, this is you know for if you talk to a biologist, which I work with three pretty closely, the rut starts for them when the antlers peel, um, and you will start seeing your the first um, signs of um, mating and uh, mating behavior dependent on your doe population and the health of it very early right breeding in some areas can start in september um depending on the distribution of the doe the health the doe to buck ratio and the competitive nature of the of the um, whitetail herd in that area that's not going to be the that's not a rule that's not a hard and fast it's just every once in a while you'll see someone say i saw chasing last night in september in maryland what is going on here yeah, and then uh, you get people saying, "Well, the the rut's going to be early this year," and it's like, "No, no, no, it's no, yeah. no, no, it's it's the same." Right. It's, that's just one doe. Right. And and that's why, you know, I don't say it because I come off like an asshole, but and I'm sorry if I shouldn't be swearing. I'll stop. Um, but like you're you're you said you're an engineer. A lot of people don't don't take like statistics classes. They don't understand regression analysis and standard deviation and mean or mean versus average. Like they don't think about things that way because we're programmed not to from an evolutionary perspective, not to. Yeah. So it's very difficult to get people to think about things uh, in that manner. So I just had an interaction with somebody on Facebook. Oh boy. Like a week about, about a week ago where I'm in these hunting groups my, for two purposes. And I'd never participated in these groups in the past in my life. But once I started a company, I thought it was important to get to the tactical level to understand what, what mm-hmm. the hunters hunters are talking about right these people in these groups um and some guy had said something about like there's only one rut and that one rut just goes until january or february and what i should have said was well what do you mean by rut right because if you're just talking about seeking and chasing then yes it starts in september and it's going to pretty pretty much go from february to march um there there are does in pennsylvania that i know of that got bred in march of this year yeah. Um, extremely late, extremely late. Like, and those bucks around those does, if you want to know in February or March where there is a buck or th- where there are does that haven't come into estrus, look for bucks with antlers. If those bucks have antlers, if those does haven't come into estrus, the bucks will hold antlers to compete. Right. As long as the nutrition is there, as long as the nutrition is there. Um, so what basically what I told him was, well, there's a first and a second period of the rut for sure. And I'm saying that looking at 2000 years of uh, 2000 cumulative years of collar deer data. In other words, if you were to add up, if you have yeah. three does that were a collar for one year, that's three years of collar deer data. Yep. Okay. So I, I, I just, you probably I got more like 10 years of 200 deer. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, when I look at those, when I when I plot those out and I do some regression analysis or I plot the, um, the, the bell curves of movement, it's evident. There's like, it's like September and then October and then November and then December and then beginning of December and then it moves up. And then like that second peak of the rut, especially when you, uh, when you control for mature deer when I say mature deer, I'm saying four to nine years old. You, your, your second peak of movement, which is what the hunter should be concerned with, is like 75% of the first peak. Yeah, and the, in some yeah. instances, it's more. And that's why you're hearing a lot more about the second. People will call it the second rut. Um, it's a little bit of a misnomer, right? But they're, they're talking about that December window of breeding. And they're yeah. saying, like, that's just as good. It can be just as good. Well, it's, it's just as good because there's, there's a little bit less does, but the bucks are still in the mood. And so they're putting on a lot of miles again. When, when yeah. In reality, it's more like the fourth peak. You get maybe one in September, a small handful in October, a majority in November. Some of those didn't take. Some of them are New Year fawns. And then they the rest, you know, December. And I, do you see that it's more prevalent the farther south you go to have multiple ruts i feel like up here our fawn drop is man that's got to be really dependent on like snow absolutely yeah absolutely yeah absolutely because the does from an evolutionary perspective can get away with dropping a baby um in, in you know six months after a march gestation start period um that can drop that baby and there's still a high likelihood that that baby will survive whereas up north those windows have to be primed and perfect because 
yeah. that doe, that baby doesn't weigh enough come that next winter because it hasn't had enough time to feed, it's going to die. Well, it's going to turn into so a the, big juicy fruit snack for a coyote. Right. <laughs> exactly. So it needs those, those need, those babies need to drop. And from an evolutionary perspective, um, those, those windows are very tight. Um, okay. yeah, so absolutely. They're tighter up North. And then as you go South, they elongate a, a lot more. And then the, the periods between ruts are a lot, um, less pronounced. So for the, from the hunter's perspective, what I'm talking about when I say rut is a more of a pragmatic definition where you're talking about seeking and chasing. Um, right. uh, you could say it's it's yards covered by a buck in a 24-hour period. For, and that's how most hunters use the word rut. So from that perspective, there are two to three periods of peak chasing where bucks are going to be covering more and more ground than ever um, and, and doing more daylighting than ever because they are looking for that first estrus doe. Mm-hmm. But if you're talking about the technical definition of a rut, then yes, you could say that there's one rut yeah. um, that goes throughout the season. But 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 for the purposes of a hunter and when they need to be in the woods, there are periods of time where there is more movement um, per 24-hour period for very tight windows, relatively tight windows. Um, and that's when the hunter should be concerned with being in the woods. Yeah. So when you when we're talking about the rut, the, let's just let's just boil it down to like what people think of as the traditional rut, like last week of October through middle of November, that window where things get really crazy. Yeah. Are we able to yet like look at data of a specific buck, say a target buck and get to some level of prediction of what he's going to do during that window of craziness based on weather conditions and wind directions. Are we able to, because, you know, up until now people would say like, well, I've been, I've been on this buck, I've been on this buck, but pretty soon the rut's going to hit and it's all going to go out the window and he's going to have no patterns and it's just going to be a game of chance. Are we starting to boil that back and say, no, we actually could do some level of prediction. Now we can't really control everything. He might get a whiff of a hot dough and chase her a different direction but he's going to come on work. He's might be working this bedding area because of this wind on this day. And until he finds that dough, we can predict his movement a little bit. Yeah. And you can even predict movement during the rut, but again, that's basic. That's dependent bucks, just like humans are individuals. Yeah. And there are certain bucks that have like their summer range and their fall range and their rutting range and they're consistent year over year. But then there are other bucks that are totally unpredictable and rut in different areas. So it really um, just depends on how much data you have on the buck you're looking for. And if you have it all, yeah. like if you had a collar on him, obviously you just go chase the collar. But if you had collar data, then you could start doing some machine learning on like what he might be doing next year. Yeah. And, and I mean, for the hunter's purposes, it really comes down to um, deploying enough cameras so you can figure out the ranges of those deer. Yeah. Um, and it's an understanding where they rut, where they, where they seek shelter, where they go late season. <clears throat> and, and again, they're a lot more constrained up north than they are down south because of the amount of vegetation that's available. Um, because again, it comes back to that triumvirate of food, sex, and security. Yeah. Um, that is a lot more limited up north because the security is limited because most of the trees aren't holding leaves. There's not a lot of trees that are, you don't have like a lot of areas where cover is prevalent. So the cover becomes constrained, and therefore the buck, mm-hmm. uh, the buck's core areas become constrained. But then down south, you can you still have a lot of trees holding leaves. You still have a lot of thicker vegetation. You still have a lot of ground cover. So they're less constrained. It goes for the same with food because food is essentially what they're eating, and that's the cover. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're more constrained up north, um, and they're less constrained down south. But it's, those, are, again, are, it's just part of the variable analysis that you should be doing when you're trying to target these animals. So can a customer that's that's got the the Spartan Forge subscription like everything they're, they're fully engaged can they use the journaling feature to journal trail camera data as well as what they're seeing in the field? They can right now and it's a, not a perfect solution. Um, but the, if you are like what I do with mine right now is I take pictures of my trail camera data and I create a journal entry and I align the journal entry time and date with what I'm seeing on the camera. Okay. Um, and then I can start to pick out trends from that and it'll go back and it will fetch the historical weather data so that you know what is in the area um, from a weather perspective when you're documenting these photo sites of these deer on these cameras. Um, but we are over the spring, we are going to be um, automating that type of ingestion so that you, you know, that you're pick, we're trying to make it where 
your camera um, will be laced up with your app so that um, uh, this process is a, a lot more frictionless. Is that for specifically like cell cams? Um, well, we, we were, we'll probably start it with cell cams, but then we'll also be able to do it for, um, uh, uh, you know, traditional SD card cameras as well. Cool. That's really interesting. I've always, I've had ideas of a, of a trail camera software project I'd love to do at some point. I just need the time to, to write code. Correct. That's what we all need. <laughs> yeah. No, that's really cool. So obviously you've done the hard work of, of understand gathering, finding data, gathering it, understanding it and applying it. I mean, that's count. You can spend countless hours and there's, you, there's always more to do, but now that it sounds like you've got a really good base of data and now, you know, we're now we're into like getting growth on the Spartan forge side of it with customers and marketing. And you, you mentioned earlier, that's been your biggest challenge. You know, what have you found that's really got traction on, on growing Spartan forge and getting it out to more people? What have you found that really makes the biggest impact? on the business side of it? You know, if you would have asked me this question a few months ago, I would have said, I spent a lot of money this year on um, Facebook, Instagram um, to create awareness. Um, and of course, none of these things get done in vacuums. And so, as you know, as an engineer, it's really difficult to do single varied analysis and come up with some kind of comprehensive answer on exactly what you're trying to do. Right. Um, but, but, that didn't do as much for me as I thought it would. And the click throughs and the, and mm -hmm. the awareness, I think it maybe gets people to know your name or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I, I for, for shits and giggles, I turned off marketing for a while and it really didn't affect my day to day sales all that much. Um, Interesting. To just yeah. turn off the, 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 um, now there can be reasons for that, that, uh, right that i'm not clear on and I'm, I'm trying to pull the string more here but doing that alone pulling that string alone is a full-time job yeah um and right now i try to spend two or three hours a day on pulling that string and that's just not nearly enough um but you know uh, my guess is is that when i started this company i was and i was recruiting pro staff that i wanted to bring on board I didn't want just public land hunters. I didn't want just private land hunters. I just didn't want this or that. I kind of kicked it up a layer of abstraction and said, I just want good people, people that I think are generally good people that are trustworthy, um, that speak the truth and that aren't peddling bullshit. Yep. Um, and surprisingly, that's not as easy as what it might sound to find in the hunting industry. Cause a lot of these guys, I can think of a few and I wouldn't speak out of school or say names, but I, I would bring them on or I would talk to them or I would speak with them. And I, the public facing image that I had of them was like, this is a no bullshitter, you know, type of person, good guy knows his stuff. Um, and then I would start to peel it away and it wouldn't be the case at all. In fact, they were so full of horseshit. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Um, you find a lot of, you know, what the rodeo industry is called buckle bunnies, but you know, pro staff bunnies, brand ambassador bunnies it's like they'll do anything to get on a i don't know a brand ambassador team or a pro staff team and then like that's where all work ceases once you give them the title they put it on their instagram bio and then they never mention your product again yeah or, or they don't genuinely engage the product so i mean right. my, my, i tell my pro staff this well you're prob that's probably often... dangerous for you because you know exactly it's like i know your ip address i know all the data where you were on it like i know how long you I were know on how many pins, i know how many pins and journal entries you're dropping in the app yeah. And I don't look at other customers for that stuff, but with my pro staff, they get testing phones and those testing phones report metrics and those metrics give me usability, data sure. integrity, yeah. crashes, all of that stuff. So I know for a lot of these people what they're actually doing. So when they tell me that they've been using it or whatever, I can say, well, no, you're full of bullshit. You know, yeah. You I love it. it. And you're like, well, you haven't logged in yet. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, but I think, getting genuinely good people. So on our pro staff, I, I can talk about two different, the, the, the main ethic was good people. And the second ethic was DIY. You can do it yourself. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean public land, but um, so two points of contact here. I have Andy May on our pro staff. If you know who Andy is, he's a prolific um, public land hunter. He's also one of the most efficient hunters. He's one of the first guys that I brought on. Um, because like myself, he's meticulous in, 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 in um, cataloging all of his hunts, 
collecting all of the data. He writes all of his stuff in an engineering book. He doesn't waste any time when he's in the whitetail woods. Um, and that uh, I have a lot of similarities when I used to hunt, which I don't anymore because um, I just don't have the time. When I used to hunt, uh, that was the same way I approached hunting and I was very successful doing that. You know, I, I'm not right. saying I'm, I'm, I'm on a level like they were, but, you know, I've got seven or eight good bucks on the wall. Um, and a lot of my ruts were spent um, overseas, um, you know, out of maybe the 15 years that I bow hunted. I think I only got to be home for maybe seven um, ruts um, and I was quasi successful. So Andy is one of those guys. He, he, he's not doing anything that other people couldn't do. Um, he's not like, you know, paying $15,000 to go shoot some deer in Texas, which there's nothing wrong with like, go right. for it. I don't care. Um, but, but the mark, I, I needed pro staff that reflected the market. Yeah. <clears throat> so when you start talking about these people, like, I don't know, you know, like a Drury outdoors or someone like that, I don't know. Somebody yeah. who's got 10 or 15,000 acres and can grow their deer, um, or they can spend $20,000 on a deer tag or getting deer with genetics brought in or whatever. Um, that's not representative of the market <clears throat> and the market won't find a counterpoint in those people um, other than, wow, look at those big deer. Yeah. Um, so you might get eyeballs, but you're not going to get engagement like you want. So with a guy like Andy or and then on the opposite end of our spectrum, a guy like Lee Ellis, um, if you've watched any like the Seek One videos, um, uh, both Lee and Andy are extremely honest, open, um, it's useful, but not required faith-based um, guys that will give you the shirt off their back um, and, and try to genuinely um, uh, pursue these animals with an ethic that is, has a transfer state to anybody else in the industry. So anybody can hunt public land like Andy, anybody can knock on doors like Drew, Drew or Lee um, from the Seek One team. They, they, they're not doing anything that any of us couldn't do. Right. Um, and they're, and, but they're also super successful in their individual pursuits. <clears throat> so what is that? What, and so <clears throat> I believe that is the genuinely being a good and hardworking person that takes accountability for themselves and realizes if there's something wrong in their life, it's probably of their own making and that they have, but that also gives them the power to fix it. And then they apply that to how they hunt. Um, so Spartan Forge, we have brought on those types of pro staffers. Um, and I don't even like the term pro staffers. Those guys are my friends. Um, and I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if I closed shop on Spartan Forge, I'd still be talking to those guys and hunting with them or hanging out with them um, down the road. Um, uh, you know, Drew um, from the Seek One crew, he's going to be, um, uh, 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 he's going to officiate at my wedding. <laughs> so nice. these guys are good friends with mine. Yeah, they're good friends with me. Uh, and we talk about family and life all the time. And that because they're genuinely good people. Right. Um, so that was the ethic I wanted to go. So from the pro spot, so to answer your question, I, I, there's never a simple answer with me, um, unfortunately. <laughs> well, it's but never a simple question, thing when you're an entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. So to answer the question that you asked 15 minutes ago, I think genuine engagement from real people uh, that are representative of the product using the moniker pro staff, um, I think that does the best job at relating because it's kind of it kind of shows you this is who the product this is what the product is this is who represents the product and this is what the product is about and i think if that's all genuine and it's all well-meaning and they see that you're i'm not just trying to create the next gimmick um that to me i think is the most self-propagating um uh most efficient way to self-propagate your 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 product and your image in a way that hunters can understand and then adopt and take on for themselves. Well, yeah. And I'm sure they can't adopt or take on growing $15,000 deer or right. grabbing 10,000 acres of land. And I have nothing against those people. I want to get, I want one day I want to be able to own my own 10,000 acres yeah. and I want to be able to grow deer and I want to be able to have my kids on there and go hunting and have a hunt camp and a cabin. I want all of that. All I'm saying is that's not an ethic that transfers to guys like you and I that are just trying to find enough time to not piss off mama still be there for our kids and go spend some time in the field. Yeah. Like that, those, those two things are mutually exclusive of each other. Right. And I'm sure what you've found is with those guys that you mentioned, the people you've brought on as pro staff, what you saw in them to make you bring them on is the same thing. Their followers see in them. Like this is an honest person. There's not going to lie. He gives honest reviews. He's got a high character. 
um, high quality character, high ethics, high morals. And so when, when they see someone like, like Drew and Lee and um, Andy say, you know, I use Spartan Forge because of this, and this is what it, I, you know, I used it. This is what it told me. I did this. Here's the result. And they're like, shit, I'm going to do it too. I mean, I trust Andy. Yeah. I've been following him for years. If he says it's good, I've trust like what am, who am I to say he's wrong? Cause I see what he does in his everyday life. You know? Yeah. And I mean, he didn't talk about the product for the first two years yeah. while he was evaluating it. So, yeah. Andy and I have been talking for years. Um, and for the, fir- like for the first year, he's like, Hey dude, I'm going to look at it and I'll compare it to what I'm seeing in the field. But I, you know, and I was like, good, that's, that is exact. The, that's what exactly I need you to the do. Answer yeah. That I want from you is that let me look at this for two years before I fart a peep about using it. Yeah. Um, that's exactly what I would want. Yeah. Yeah. Any chance you can extend your data out to like February, March, April, and do some predictions on where deer are going to drop their antlers for me. Cause I would, I would buy it hook, line and sinker then. <laughs> well, I'm uh, we are introducing, trying to introduce, I was trying to get it out this in November, December, but unfortunately, as you probably know, well, development and technical debt, um can 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 kill you. can creep up and kill you um that kind of happened with me on this feature we're calling aware feature which is um a neural network where you just highlight a prop a piece of property um and it will tell you areas to go scout so it's not going to tell you where the antlers fall but it's going to tell you where the ai thinks deer spend their time yeah um, and I it's trying it, to get that out this season it'll probably come out in the spring shed season's a little bit easier it's a little bit more obvious like you go out at the right time after you know give it give a good snowfall and then give it a week and you'll know where the deer are, you know, you know, yeah. you can just see the tracks, which is hunting. It's different. Cause you got to intercept those tracks. When a deer sheds, I can come two weeks after and still pick that shed up if, unless someone else did. Yeah. But yeah, though, yeah that's, exactly. That's really cool. But we are trying to get that wear feature out and it's part of like a suite of scouting features along with this thing we call blue force tracker. Cool. Um, we've got a few, a suite of like um, scouting and off season features um, that I think are going to help. Um, whitetail. I think the most important thing whitetail hunters can do is their homework in the off season. Um, oh, so yeah. I'm trying to build out, I'm trying to build out um, features that incentivize people doing things outside of the season. Cause that's how you get successful. Oh yeah. Yeah. Finding new spots, learning new things, postseason scouting. I mean, the, the world that's yeah. endless, endless possibilities of how you can get better outside of the fall. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, exactly. I, I learned tons just shed hunting and like what I see shed hunting tells me like I should just start hunting late season. Like I should just forget about early season and the rut and just hunt late season. Cause when I'm walking around out here, everything seems really obvious. Like here's a highway coming out of that bedding area into this food plot on public land. Yeah, they're unpressured. And, um, one of our pro staffers is a guy named Johnny Stewart. Yeah. Um, Johnny is a prolific late season deer killer. I mean, he puts his biggest deer on the ground in January. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing to watch because, and he does the same things that you're just talking about is he walks them back and he figures out the pinch points and the wet and the, and the late season bedding and food sources that I, like I said before, are a lot more constrained mm-hmm. and then he puts it together and he makes his move based on it. And I think it's a really, there's less pressure in the field as well. Like those deer get back to their spring patterns and, um, right reacting to pressure like they would in the spring or summer where you can almost walk up on a deer um after being left alone in the woods for a month or so a lot of those deer are a lot un- more unpressured so i think it's a, a really good way to hunt oh yeah for sure i mean especially in north dakota i mean i loved um you know shed hunting north dakota because the state the whitetail state of north dakota shrinks by about 90 percent for shed season Crops are out, leaves are gone. I mean, there's not a ton of whitetail habitat in North Dakota, especially eastern North Dakota come March. So if you find food in a tree lot, you might as well walk it, even if it's just like two like two rows of uh, shelter belt. I mean, there's going to be deer in it because they don't got anywhere else to go. Yeah, absolutely. That's fun. That's yep. fun. Cool. So so what's so besides, you know, you, you mentioned a couple of new features, the wear, the track. What else is on the future radar for Spartan Forge and you know, where do you kind of see this going in the future in terms of growth and, and your dreams for the for the business? Uh, the first thing will be um, like, like the 100 meter target here, or maybe 25 meter target is we're going to be getting out the only LIDAR data in the U.S. and it's going to be the most comprehensive and, 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 um, and high resolution LIDAR data. 
I believe we have one meter coverage for about 70% of the U.S. right now. Okay. So you'll be able to see variable elevation um, distance and like a raster image um, of, of um, uh, LIDAR data across the U.S. And I'm hoping pray, and praying that I get out by the end of next week. Um, and um, that, that LIDAR data is huge. Uh, I can't, you know, you can see, literally I can see deer and elk trails on it in my hot, on my spots in North Dakota. Really? So when you start talking about being able to see that type of stuff, or like in swamps, you know, you know how on some um, ele- or on some um, uh, aerial data, you can see like a few, mm-hmm. just like a few um, trails. You can see all of the trails with this lidar data, like all of them, even like the old ones. So then, would we be not closest... far away from like having the computer analyze those trails and like calculate, like part of your wear app is like we're looking. Well, like, that here's is the, the wear feature. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, that is the wear feature. That's what the wear feature does. Cool. Um, so. Um, the LiDAR data and then Blue Force Tracker, which essentially is just you draw an arbitrary polygon around an area and um, uh, you can um, auto share points with family members or good but scouting buddies. Um, like if you drop a point in that this little geo fence, okay. it'll be auto shared among you and your buddies. And then also um, whether you're trying to get access to hunt somebody's like per- private property or you're trying to track your son hunting in the backyard or you're trying to track somebody who's hunted your property, or you're just trying to auto share points. You can also auto share location in there. I'm trying to get that out here in the very near future, just basically doing um, some refactoring of that code and cleaning it up and making sure that it looks good for prime time. Um, And then uh, after that is the wear feature. And then some of that camera stuff that I talked about as well um, is coming down the pike. And then we have a partnership with a notable Western organization that we are going to be um, releasing here pretty soon for the purposes of like Western um, e-scouting, but also Western like tag data. So that's kind of like our, our, our triumvirate of things that we're trying to do um, through the spring and, and the fall. And then of course, I'm sorry, spring and summer. Then of course, um, getting pe- people to focus on off-season scouting. Nice. Um, that's kind of the long and the short of it. Awesome. Sounds like you guys got big things in the works. For sure. Sounds like it's we'll going to be an exciting journey. to stay. I'm excited to follow along and see what you guys are doing. I think, you know, I've, I've used all of the major mapping. Um, you know, I'm sure you've, you're, you're well aware of the other products out there, especially in the West. And so I'm really excited to, to check out the, the Spartan Forge because it seems like you are much more focused on doing one thing well than doing everything mediocrely. Like some of these other giant companies are doing um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There won't, you won't see a four by four app from us anytime soon. <laughs> I don't usually take my four by four on trails anyway, so I'm not worried about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so okay. fun. Give people a chance to, you know, give them the rundown of where they can find you, what the website is, all your social medias and, and stuff like that, where they can download the app. Spartan Forge on Instagram. Um, uh, I, I, if people have questions about the application or questions about development or car GPS data. I answer 80% of the messages on there, unless it's something that can be answered by the marketing team. But I always want to engage with customers, especially if someone's having an issue or has a recommendation. Um, that's the best way to get a hold of me. Um, uh, our, our website is www.spartanforge.ai is an artificial intelligence. Um, and from there, you can download the app. Um, there are plenty of codes out there that you can find um, uh, to get yourself 20% off. Um, after we do the wear feature, we will be raising the price um, just because of the computational load. Um, you can imagine all of the back end yep. um, processes that have to take place to enable something like that. So that costs money. So we will be um, raising the price sometime after we, we deploy the wear feature. Um, but for now, it's $39.99. Um, I'm thinking it'll just go up to like $49.99. And that's per um, year, right? Annual yeah, subscription. Year. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's... but then we also do a free app. Yeah. where you can get all of like if, basically if you're paying for onyx or you're paying for HuntStand or you're paying for one of these other ones because you want property data um we give it out for free so people can just go download our free app and they can see the property data and the weather forecast and they can drop pins like they can on every other map you won't have the mapping that's as good you won't have journaling the mapping is as good as our competitors it's one and three meter imagery but we offer inside of the paid app we offer five centimeter imagery for about 40 percent of the u.s um, which is the industry leading. It's the highest standard of, of imagery available. And when you um, say 40% of the U.S., I, is the, I, can I assume that that's actually the 40% of the U.S. That, where the white-tail hunters are? I mean, 
like it's on the it eastern is mostly side. Eastern. Yeah, yeah, right. It's, it's not eastern, the yeah. out west stuff is the stuff that gets tricky. Yeah, it's, it's not it's not as um, um, populated out there, but we are doing some stuff to improve our mapping out west um, over the ops, off season. But yeah, that free app is out there, so stop paying for property data. You already paid for it when you bought the bought the property. Um, uh, and so, well, I mean, well, I mean, technically, you paid for it because you paid a, a county tax for that county auditor office to upload that data. Yeah. And, and do a GIS and, service so out there. Yeah. Yep, and the GIS, and and so. And that's really what these guys are offering is commodity data. If I do anything, I want to serve as a check to these companies to say, no, if you want hardworking people's money, you need to offer more than a freaking map that someone else built, which is Mapbox. All of them use Mapbox. Um, and you need to offer more than um, uh, the, the commodity free county data. data. Yeah. yeah and, 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 so build something better with the millions of dollars that you've gotten off the backs of hunters. Right. So those are the places people can find me. <laughs> nice. And uh, uh, I, I do all the interactions on there. And um, uh, yeah, uh, the, the website is spartanforge.ai, like I said, and Instagram is the best way to get a hold of us and hit me up there with your questions. Or if you listen to the app or listen to this podcast, like what you heard, you have questions, hit me up. Awesome. You have it there, folks. Spartan Forge, go check it out. Learn where your deer are going and how to follow them. Thanks, folks. Thanks for being here, Bill.